Our text this morning is Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 13. Luke 13, 1 to 13. I encourage you to follow along in your Bible. There is something powerful about being able to hold God's word in your hand to handle the scriptures very literally. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the chair in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at all, you're welcome to take one of those home. You will find no better book. Luke chapter 13, verse 1 to 13. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that, thou shalt cut it down. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. So here we have, it says in verse 1, this season, or in, at that season. So we have Christ is on his way to Jerusalem. The trip begins in Luke 9.51, tells us that it was the time for this trip to begin, and it ends in Luke 19.41, when Jesus comes down from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. It's in three parts. It is preaching to, quote, the some that bring news of the Galileans. It is the... Uh, parable following a parable of repentance and then there is a separate example of the freedom that we can have in repentance and we'll only cover a portion of that story there is there is some of that story is on hypocrisy afterwards of the pharisees but we are just going to take the first portion so part one is an impromptu sermon and like the best sermons it is short and sweet This will not be one of the best sermons. (laughs) Because it will be neither short nor probably very sweet. Repent or perish. Repent or perish. We hear today quite often when we're witnessing, when people are angry with God, how come God lets bad things happen? Why do bad things happen? God gets blamed. Immediately, God gets blamed. Why did God let New York get flooded? Or Cuba? Or New Orleans? But yet I've been guilty in my own mind. I subscribed to the idea when it was shared with me that New Orleans was flooded because it is a cesspool of sin. And that's what they're saying here in the text. We can see what is implied by how Jesus answers. 
There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? These people thought that the Galileans were punished because they were exceptionally bad. Jesus, did you hear about these really bad people? They were bad. They were They were killed by Pilate and their blood was mingled with their sacrifices. They were so bad. The truth is that we are all bad enough. We are all bad enough. Look at Romans chapter 3 verse 23 with me. I encourage you to turn there to handle your very own copy of the scriptures. Romans chapter 3 verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have all come short. We are all bad enough. We often think that we are just good enough. I'm just good enough. If I can look down the spiritual ladder at people below me, then I'm good enough. I'm just, maybe I'm just good enough. And a lot of times, we have that bias, that I'm just good enough. After all, I haven't murdered anyone. I've heard that a lot. I haven't murdered anyone. The rich young ruler, these have I kept from my youth. I'm just good enough. But in reality, we are all just bad enough. We are all just bad enough. We have all fallen short. We look below, but the standard is always up. The standard is never down below us. The standard is always up above. In football, on TV, I have trouble trying to figure out what yard marker they have to get to when they want to get a first down. So they conveniently put a nice big yellow line on the field through computers, the magic of computers, and they tell me how far they have to go. It's very clear to me, and of course the players on the field know, it's very clear to me where that line is that I have to pass. We need to look for that line in our life. If we have not accepted Christ this morning as our Savior to pay for our sin, we need to recognize that that line is in front of us. We are just bad enough. We have not made it, nor will we make it without Christ. We are all just bad enough. I want to see in Romans chapter 13, or Luke chapter 13, that Christ does not condemn Pilate. Christ does not condemn Pilate. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things. No mention of Pilate whatsoever. Christ doesn't condemn the Galileans either. And in fact, Christ doesn't condemn the people who bring him this news. He doesn't put their names in scripture so that we will know who they are. There are other people that Paul, the Apostle Paul names that are forever recorded in scriptures. But these people aren't condemned, these people that bring this news. Because Christ did not come to condemn. Christ did not come to condemn us. Turn with me to chapter 3 in verse 18 of John. John 3.18 He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, 
because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Christ did not come to condemn. So these guys were pointing out how bad the Galileans were. Maybe also they were looking for a pat on the back. Did you hear about those poor souls who got killed, that Pilate killed and mingled their blood with their sacrifices? In other words, we're not as bad as them. Look how bad they were. Expecting maybe, in reciprocation, maybe like the rich young ruler who said, good master, and expected a title in return, Jesus to say, oh, but those were bad people. You guys are cool. You're all right. It's like the Pharisee and the publican. Luke 18, verse 11. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So here we have these fellows abased. Have we looked around at the publicans around us? We know who they are. We know people that are living in sin. We know people who are obviously have turned their backs on God. It's obvious when people are living in sin. We think when we're in sin that we can hide it, that we're cagey and smart. We can, we can brush it under the rug. But when people are living in sin, you can smell it on them. You can smell the bad attitude. My dad used to say that. Your attitude smells. It took me a while to get that. Now I have kids. You can smell the unrepentance. You can smell the bitter spirit. You can see the lack of fruit. You can see there's a lack of love. I'm a software developer, and in my field, we have things called smells. When you look at the instructions somebody has written... And you sense something is wrong, that's a smell. It's not wrong in and of itself, but it tells you that something is wrong. When you have a smell in your refrigerator, that's not the problem. That's telling you there's a problem. You need to start opening containers and throwing things out. That's a smell. When there's a lack of love, that's a smell. Something's wrong. When there's a lack of joy, if there's no joy in our lives, that bears consideration. When there is no peace... I love to be at peace. I love it. I would venture to say there is nothing better. I love to have peace and joy and love. And when those are missing, there is an issue. So we look at the publicans around us and we can see that person's in sin. I can tell. Now, we ought not to judge because we are not their judge. We ought not to judge another man's servant, but we know. And the Bible calls us in some cases to rebuke those people. But what of ourselves? Do we smell our own spiritual breath? We can put our hand to our mouth and blow and we can smell our breath. Is my breath okay? It's a self-check. We would rather have ourselves checked than somebody else tell us. I like being married because I have someone I can trust that will come to me gently and say. But do we smell our own spiritual breath? Have we done a self-check? Look at Psalm 139 with me.
Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, O God. Yes, God, I recognize that there's people that are living in sin around me, but search me, O God. Do we look for the beam in our own eye rather than the moat in somebody else's eye? Search me, O God. Search me. Back in Luke chapter 13, we see that Jesus takes advantage. Jesus takes advantage. Verse 2. And Jesus answering said unto them. Now out of all the comments and the questions that Jesus would get from a crowd that is thronging around him. When he heals the lady that has the issue of blood 12 years. She, she touches the hem of his garment and he says to his disciples, who touched me? And the disciples are confused. You're being thronged by a crowd of people. It's, it's, a, it's crazy around you. And you want to know who touched you? Everybody touched you. And so out of all the comments and, the, and what we hear, we have the story of the, the blind man who hears that Jesus is coming and he's calling out for Jesus and the disciples come and tell him to shut up. And he won't because he wants to be healed. So in the midst of this cacophony, why does he answer these guys here, these some that come from the, this news of the Galileans? Jesus takes advantage of this. He takes advantage of the opportunity. The conversation topics that come up are easier to use to witness than forced topics. It's easier when somebody comes to you with something spiritual, comes to you with something that you can use as a witness, comes to you with a very obvious chance to spread some seed. It's like they put the seed right in your hand so you can cast it out again. Jesus takes advantage of this conversation with this mini sermon, this short and sweet sermon. He goes with what the people are interested in. He doesn't preach to them what they're interested in, but he uses what they're interested in to preach to them the gospel, plain and simple. The gospel, I might remind you, which is, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. This was probably not what they had in mind, not what they were interested in hearing, not the pat on the back maybe they were looking for. I like this quote from Spurgeon. Somebody complained to Charles Spurgeon that all of his sermons sounded the same. And he replies, and so they should. I take a text and make a beeline for the cross. I take a text and make a beeline for the cross. Better advice for witnessing, I don't know that we'll ever hear. I take a text and make a beeline for the cross. That is exactly what Christ is doing here. He takes this opportunity and he makes a beeline for the cross. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And verse 3, ye shall all likewise perish. Ye shall all likewise perish. That's key. Now, some have pointed out that likewise perish may have referred to the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And so it may. But... Often there is multiple applications in what Christ has said. And there is a much greater application for us in ye shall all likewise perish this morning. We see references before Jesus says this to the kingdom of God. And we see references after this to the kingdom of God. 
For instance, in verse 18, then said he, unto what is the kingdom of God like, and whereunto shall I resemble it? So we're talking about the kingdom of God perishing. We see in verse 28, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. We're not simply talking about dying here. They were going to die. That was a given. I'm going to move on to part two where Jesus gives this parable afterwards. After this short, sweet, poignant, and ultimately important sermon of except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And uh, in verse six and seven, he spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? This is what I've called the reckoning. This is the reckoning. He expected fruit. There was a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he expected fruit on it. I don't think that's I don't think that's unreasonable. That's what a vineyard is for. That's all a vineyard is for. Is fruit. You plant a tree, you expect fruit. You plant a vine, you expect fruit. Let's look at uh, Psalm, Psalm 1 verse 3. And he shall be like a tree Planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth, bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Now in the Bible, fruit can mean many things. There is fruit of repentance. There is the fruits of the spirit, which are the same. There are uh, fruits of spiritual reproduction, some 60, some 30, some 100. And there are fruits as in children. In the Old Testament, fruit often meant children, the fruit of your womb. Regardless, a fruit is to bring, a tree is to bring forth fruit. That's its purpose. So when he comes to his tree in his vineyard, he expects fruit. This is the fruit of repentance. We see, he says, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. When John is preaching at his baptism and people come to be baptized and he tells them to bring forth fruits, meet for repentance, fruits worthy of repentance, fruits appropriate for repentance. And then he tells, they say, what will we do? What are we supposed to do? What are these fruits? And he goes into practical applications of the fruits of the Spirit. If you have two coats, give one of them away. Tells not to take more taxes than we're due. Tells the soldiers to be good. These are fruits meat for repentance. The fruit also that is expected is fruits of reproduction. Like I said, some 30, some 60, some 100. These are fruit that has grown up and has spread seeds itself. We are a tree in his vineyard, after all. We owe him this fruit. It is expected of us. That's where this tree was. It was in his vineyard. This is the reckoning. So what happens to a tree that doesn't produce? Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? Cut it down. Cut down a tree. Now, we're in BC. We don't believe in cutting down trees. Trees are more precious than people. But it's okay. This isn't talking about an actual tree. The tree is okay. It's talking about people. 
What does cut it down mean? What does he mean, cut it down? Surely it doesn't mean cut it down. It doesn't mean kill the tree. Look at Luke chapter 3 and verse 9. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Not just cut down, but burned. Luke 3, 17, just over. Whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. Back to chapter 13 in Luke and verse 28. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. Cut it down. This is a tree that never had fruits of repentance. This is a tree that never accepted Christ as its savior. And it gets cut down and it gets thrown into the fire. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. The dresser of the vineyard in verse 7, is there with the owner of the vineyard. And he's standing there with the owner looking at the tree. How would we like to stand by our tree? Picture yourself, grade 5 science fair, and you're standing beside your science project, presenting it. Now, I typically did my science project the night before. I kid you not, the night before I would put together. It wasn't even a science project. It was a it was, it, was, it was laughable. And I had to stand there with my project, and it was embarrassing. So let's picture ourselves with our trees, our trees that have all the fruit that we've produced. And God comes by to look at our tree. And what does he expect? Fruit. He expects fruit. Is he going to be happy with our tree? Did we bring forth fruits of the Spirit? Did we bring forth fruits of reproduction? Will we be happy to give the God of the universe a tour of our tree? Look at all these different fruits. Or are we going to stand there with our heads down, ashamed, hoping that he just passes us by? Are we going to take our tree and scoot it behind one of the other trees so that he doesn't see it, like our science project? What will God find on our tree? Are we simply cumbering the ground? Are we simply taking up space? Are we just taking up a pew and and people's energy? Do we cumber the ground? But all is not lost. Verse 8. And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also till I shall dig about it and dung it. Saved by the dung. Saved by the dung. My God is a God of second chances. Christ is our second chance. At birth, our first chance is blown because we were born into sin, which is why Christ was born of a virgin. He had no earthly father. He did not have sin. I had no choice. I was born of an earthly father. I was born into sin. And then I further compounded that with my voluntary sin. But Christ says, wait. Lord, let it alone this year also. He says, wait. Give me another chance to work with this tree. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Give me another chance to work with this tree. And also, near there, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. 
I'm going to borrow from Matthew Henry here, his commentary. Hebrews 7.25. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Matthew Henry has this to say. The dresser's intercession for it, for the tree. Christ is the great intercessor. He ever lives interceding. Ministers are intercessors. They that dress the vineyard should intercede for it. Those we preach to, we should pray for, for we must give ourselves to the word of God and to prayer. And I would posit that preaching to is all of us in our day-to-day life, witnessing to those around us. We must pray for them. Observe what he prays for, and that it is a reprieve. Lord, let it alone this year also. He does not pray, Lord, let it never be cut down, but Lord, not now. Lord, do not remove the dresser, do not withhold the dews, do not pluck up the tree. We are encouraged to pray to God for the merciful reprieve of barren fig trees. Lord, let them alone, continue them yet a while in their probation, bear with them a little longer, and wait to be gracious. Thus we must stand in the gap to turn away wrath. Observe how he promises to improve this reprieve, if it be obtained till I shall dig about it and dung it. In general, our prayers must always be seconded with our endeavors. The dresser seems to say, Lord, it may be I have been wanting in that which is my part, but let it alone this year and I will do more than I have done toward its fruitfulness. Thus, in all our prayers, we must request God's grace and with a humble resolution to do our duty, else we mock God and show that we do not rightly value the mercies we pray for. Give me another chance. This is another chance for us, both as the tree that is unfruitful, and this is a chance for us to work with those around us that may be unfruitful. I guarantee there's someone around us that is unfruitful. Let me dig at the roots. Is Christ digging at your roots this morning? I know Christ has dug at my roots, the very roots of who I am. The assumptions that I carry with me day to day, the assumptions that I've carried from my culture and from my parents and from my educations, things I believe in, assumptions that come from my pride and my stubbornness and my selfishness. When I was first married, I had this assumption that because I earned the money that it was mine and my wife didn't deserve any. I mean, it sounds brutal when you say it, obviously, but that's how I felt. That was an assumption that I had that was very quickly challenged. What assumptions is God digging at in your life? Maybe your wife needs more money. When Christ digs at our roots, when Christ goes in the home that is our heart, can we open all the doors? Is there a closet that we have hidden away in the back that is under lock and key that God cannot get in because God cannot have that portion of our life? Is God going to root into that closet and take things away that we don't want to get rid of? He says, let me dung it. Now, I'm going to sort of take this as a pun. Sometimes our life feels like God is heaping the dung on it. Is your life, do you feel like your life is covered in dung? (laughs) Sometimes. Really, anything that highlights our sin and drives us to Christ is spiritually nutritional. 
It is what manure is intended to be, nutrition for that plant. And to a tree, that's what this was. It was warmth to the roots and it was nutrients. Christ wants to embrace us. Sometimes he needs to pile on the dung to get us to turn to him so he can embrace us with that nutrition, with that warmth, with that embrace. Luke thirteen thirty four, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and you would not. Christ wants to embrace us. Is this our chance this morning? Is this our chance to repent, except we perish? Better yet, is this our last chance this morning? Is this your last chance to repent? I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. This is our chance to confess our sin and to turn from it. That is repentance. It's a change of mind and it's a change of life. Repentance. Now is our chance to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There may be two cases here this morning. One, we have never accepted Christ and therefore our sin is not paid for. There is no fruit of repentance and we will be cut down. Another is that we have accepted Christ as our Savior, but we will let sin creep into our life. And we need to let God clean house and we need to repent. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 with me. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I want to move to verse 9. Repent and live. Repent and live. He says in verse 9, the dresser, and if it bear fruit, well. And now it's only one word, but how glorious that word. And if it bear fruit, well. Luke chapter 15, verse 10. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Let me read that again. That's pretty key. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Repent and live. Here is living. And if the fruit, and if it bear fruit, well. If it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that, thou shalt cut it down. Thou shalt cut it down. God will judge. I'm guessing normally the dresser of the vineyard would do this. But only the owner has the power to cut down a tree. God has the power to cut down your tree. My kids say, Dad, that's not fair. About all kinds of things. Dad, it's not fair. Life isn't fair. And I tell them life isn't fair in our favor. It's not fair that we get to live. It's not fair that Christ died in our place. By all fairness, we must bear the burden and the punishment for our sin. But life isn't fair. Praise God, life isn't fair. Luke twelve five. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. 
Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Now I want to look at what post-repentance looks like. This is part three. Repent and be free. Repent and be free. Are we struggling under a load of sin this morning? Are we bowed down? And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loose from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. I want to look also at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Again and again, sin so easily besets us. It's like there's somebody out there that knows our weaknesses and has ingenious traps to get us to fall into sin. Like a roaring lion roaming about, seeking whom he may devour. How long have we lived bowed under the chains of sin? How long have we agonized over our sin, over that closet that we have in our house that's hidden and locked? Like the Christmas story, the chains that they wear into eternity. Do we wear those chains on us, the chains of our sins? How long have we been rationalizing our sin? It's not sin because. It's okay for me because. Rationalization, rationalization, rationalization. I'm a fairly logical person. I can come up with some fairly logical arguments for why my sin is okay. But it's not okay. It's a weight that folds me right over and I can in no way lift up myself. What is binding us this morning? What are those chains? What are those ropes? What are those handcuffs? Is it bitterness? Are we bitter this morning at somebody? Have we carried that bitterness for 18 years? Or a day? Do we have habits that we know are sin? Do we have appetites that we have indulged? Do we have pride? Are we bowed down with our pride? Do we have fear? 18 years is nothing to God. It's nothing. 18 years she suffered with this. 12 years, the woman with the issue of blood. 18 years is is nothing for God. You can go on your knees today, even in a spiritual attitude of being on your knees or on your face, even right now, and repent of that sin, of that bitterness, of those habits, of those appetites. Repent, meaning a change of mind, a change of heart, and a change of life. It's, it's okay, you can do that right now. 18 years is nothing to God. But don't wait the 18 years. The owner of the vineyard had come by three years and said, there's no fruit here, cut this tree down. And he said, give me one more year. Give me one more year. Are we on our last year? Verse 12, Luke chapter 13. 
Jesus is calling. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loose from thine infirmity. Before she calls to him, he calls to her. Before we ever think to call to God, he calls to us. This morning, Jesus is calling. Jesus is calling to you. Repent. And then in verse 13, and he laid his hands on her, and this is the last point, immediately. Immediately. Where in verses 3 and 5 and 7 and 9, we see judgment. But except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. You will be cut down, you will be cast into everlasting fire. Here, we see God's true heart. We see release. We see freedom. We see grace. We see forgiveness. We see mercy. We see God's love. Immediately. You can share in that forgiveness and that peace and that love and that joy immediately. You don't have to wait till you get home. You don't have to wait till the service is over. Immediately. You can have Christ as your Savior right now. This very moment. Immediately. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of repentance. And I'll leave you with these words from a song. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling, O sinner, come home. Let's pray.